Children are dismissed for the musical practice. The rest of you, please turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 5. It's just two books back from Matthew if you're having a hard time finding it. And this morning we will look at arguably one of the strangest of Zechariah's eight night visions. For those of you who may have missed a couple weeks or you may be new here, we're going through the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet, meaning that he is a prophet sent to Israel after, post, the exile to Babylon. You'll remember that God had warned Israel that if they rebelled, if they would not obey, if they worshipped other gods, that eventually he would remove them from the land. That warning is clear in the book of Deuteronomy. And he sent them prophets, and he warned them, and he warned them, and they did not listen. And so finally, they were forcibly removed from the land, sent to Babylon for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, amazingly, God turned the heart of Cyrus, and he issued a proclamation ordering the return of the exiles, and only 50,000 of a people that numbered in the millions returned. And so God has sent prophets, namely Haggai and now Zechariah, to this post-exilic community as they begin to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They're discouraged people. They're a downtrodden people, formerly a, a political superpower. They're now on the sidelines. They're under foreign rule. They don't have a king. They just have a governor. Zerubbabel. And so God has been encouraging and, and he has been sending Zechariah and in the first section of Zechariah, the first six chapters, God has given Zechariah eight visions in one evening. We said it's sort of similar to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol where in one night Scrooge gets three you know, spirits who come to him. Zechariah has eight visions in one night and the summary of these eight visions are words of comfort to Jerusalem. And so we've seen in the first vision of chapter one, um, where the, the red horseman and the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, has a, has a gathering meeting, an intelligence meeting of his scouts who've gone out to scout out the land. And we hear this report that God is angry with the nations who have punished Israel. And he, he has returned with favor and love to Jerusalem to rebuild it. And in the, in the second vision, we saw the, the four horns and the four craftsmen that, yes, God has ordained the world powers that would subjugate Israel, but God has also ordained those who would knock those world powers down. And that through it all, Israel would persist. And then in chapter um, 2, we saw the man with the measuring line. A clear symbol that Israel would be rebuilt. Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And a call to those who remained in Babylon, get out of there, come flee, come, come back home. And a further announcement of, of judgment and God's anger at Babylon and what would soon come upon them. Then in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we, we have standalone full chapter visions that reinstate or, or affirm the two leaders that Israel had, the religious leader, Joshua the high priest. If there's any question, is this man qualified? I mean, he was born in Babylon Tainted by pagan sources? No, the Lord has redeemed him. The Lord has purified him. The Lord has installed him. 
And the Lord has given him charge of the temple. And, and in chapter 4, Zerubbabel, the political leader, he as well is, is appointed by the Lord. He will, by the Lord's strength and by trusting in the Lord's spirit, he will have success. And so the message to Israel is clear. These leaders God has given you. God is for you, not against you. The Lord will prosper you. The Lord will bless you. But then, in chapter 5, there was a call to further repentance. And last week, we saw with the vision of the flying scroll that judgment begins with the people of God. That before God was going to judge the nations, God was going to purify his people. And, and the, the tool that he uses of purification is his word. This big scroll, 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, was going to go out through the land. It was going to enter the home. And it was going to discipline those, especially those guilty of, of oppressing the poor, of, of false swearing and theft, which are terms combined to talk about those who, using the courts, would rob and defraud the poor, social injustice. And God cares about that. And there's an implicit call to repentance. Well, this week, we are going to look at arguably the strangest of the visions, the one that when you first read it, you may scratch your head the most, the one about a woman in a basket. And it's closely linked with last week's message of the flying scroll, but let's just read Zechariah 5, 5 to 11, and then we will dive in and see what God has for us here. Zechariah 5, 5 to 11. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I asked, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said to me, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. I think you can see now why I said this is one of the most curious and strange of the night visions. And yet, I think we'll see its, it's meaning is pretty straightforward and clear. Now before we, we look at it piece by piece, I want you to look at structure. The vision clearly is, is in two scenes. There's a formula that's been occurring in, in, in these night visions of three words repeated. Maybe you'll, you'll see it. If you look back to chapter 5, verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes saw and behold. Look at the beginning of chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes, saw and behold. And that formula occurs in our passage twice. Stage 1 in verse 5, the angel said to me, lift your eyes and see, verse 7, and behold, the leaden cover. And then in verse 9, then I lifted my eyes, saw and behold. And you can go through the visions, and in nearly all of them, that formula, I lifted my eyes, I saw, and behold, introduces the vision. So that occurs twice in our passage. There's two scenes. There's two parts to this night vision. First, he sees this basket, and then the, the lid's taken off, and he sees the woman sitting in the basket. That's stage one. And then the, the women with wings come, pick up the basket, and go and drop it off. And so we're going to look at it in two points, and then try to come up with some application for it. 
There's also, like I said, connection to last week's message. Last week we saw a normal everyday object, a scroll, flying, bigger than normal, doing something remarkable in relationship to sin. This week we see something similar, another everyday item, a, a basket for grain. It's, it's large enough to hold a woman, so it's, it's bigger than normal, and it's flying, and it's going out, and it's also in relationship to sin. These are very connected. So now let's, with that sort of intro, let's dive into our first point, the departure of sin. The departure of sin. And that word departure is important. Even though we don't actually see until the second scene where it's going and how it's going, the fact that it is going is emphatic in this passage. The angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. So right there, whatever this thing, we don't even know what it is yet, it's going out. It's on the move. It's departing. See what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? Then he said, this is the basket that is going out. In case you missed it the first time, it's repeated. This, this is a basket on the move. It's going out. And whereas last week the scroll was going out into all the land, this is going out from the land someplace else. This is exiting, stage north. Thank you, Isla. That was very kind of you to laugh. Okay. Um, and so first we're going to look at the flying basket, the flying basket. Now the word for basket, the ESV says basket, is, is really a Hebrew word for a measurement. It's an ephah. Um, it's, it's a dry measurement about the size of three-fifths of a bushel, and it's their largest usable measurement. There is an omer, but the omer, from what we can tell, doesn't actually exist. It's just used to calculate. But the largest measurement that any everyday Israelite would encounter would be the ephah. And it can be used most specifically to measure the contents or to be the name of the object containing it. So it can mean the basket or the bushel basket containing an ephah. It's, it's, a, it's a large term for measurement. And that's what he sees. He sees this, this ephah, and it's on the move. It's going out. And, and that's the next point. The basket is already in movement. The, see, the emphasis in the first point is the departure, and the second is where it's going, is it's its destination. So we've got a, an ephah on the move, a basket that's getting out of Israel, the departure of sin. And then in the second part, we're going to look at, well, where is it going? But that's the emphasis. This basket's on the move, and the importance isn't just the basket, but what's in it. Twice the angel says what this is. You see that in verse 6. This is their iniquity in all the land. Now that's the ESV translation. It's a poor translation. Um, you'll have a footnote, and some of your translations, the New American Standard, the, the King James, the New King James, will say this is their appearance, which is a better translation. It's just difficult. It seems weird. And so the ESV went with this is their um, iniquity. But really, this is, this is an image of them. This is a picture of Israel. That's the point. What you're seeing is a picture of the people. Specifically, in the next statement that we see in verse 8, after the lead cover is lifted, this is wickedness. This is the sin of the people. And so what we see is this basket, and it's got a heady, heavy leaden cover, which is unusual. Ephahs didn't usually have heavy lead covers. This is heavy lead cover, and when it's lifted up, what is revealed is a woman sitting in the basket. 
So that's the picture. This is a picture of Israel. This is their appearance. This is, this is a symbol of them. And the symbol is a measuring basket full with this woman who's trying to get out. Notice she's trying to get out. The, the lid has to get shoved back down. There's some struggle going on. She's not willingly sitting here. And he says, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So now we're looking under the leaden cover. So the first point here, the woman is wickedness personified. Personified. It's not as though there's something intrinsically wicked about a woman in a basket. This isn't some Hebrew slogan or phrase like, oh no, the woman's really going to get in the basket now. This is, this is a picture. This is a picture and it's, it's a picture of a full measure. This, this wickedness is full. It's the largest dry measurement, and it's full. It's measured out. It's full up. And that's a, that is a biblical-ism, you know, the, where it talks about the, their, their sin is filled up. Abraham's going to not go to the promised land yet because the sin of the, sin of the Amorites is not yet full. So this is sin that's been gathered up. It's been measured up and filled up. It's personified by this woman in the basket. You say, why a woman? Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a specific reason. We'll see some connections with this in another woman later in the Bible in a, in a few minutes. But frequently, sin, and in particular religious sin, I think this is getting towards all of Israel's wickedness, but specifically the idolatry, the paganism, the false worship that they picked up in Babylon, um, and when the Lord's using those types of images, it's frequently personified as a woman. But in case you think the Bible's negative towards women, don't forget the church is also a woman, the bride of Christ. So this woman in this basket. And I want you to notice also that wickedness is being forcibly contained and restrained. Wickedness is forcibly contained and restrained. There's a struggle going on. It takes the angel on a leaden cover to keep her in the basket. It has to be thrust down. Clearly, she wants to get out. So, wickedness has been gathered up from the people, from Israel. This is their iniquity in all the land, or this is their appearance in all the land. And it's been gathered filled up into the largest measure of dry unit. A lead cover is put on so not a drop or a grain of it will spill, even though it wants to get out, even though it wants to escape, and it's leaving. Now, this is good news for Israel. It's really good news. Because what happened? Who left last time Israel was wicked? Israel left, right? Last time Israel wasn't being faithful. It was the people of Israel who the Lord deported to Babylon. And here, here's a vision from Zechariah saying, this time, this time, it's your wickedness that I'm going to deport. I'm going to gather all your sin and your wickedness up, and it's going to leave. It's, it's exiting stage north. It is gathered up. I'm not going to let it spill. It's, it's full. It's big. But I put a lead cover on top, and I'm not going to let it spill, and it's, it's leaving. This is a picture of God cleansing his people. It, it ties back to the promise in chapter 3 that he would, look at chapter 3, verse 9. Behold, on the stone that I have, this is the promise to Joshua the high priest, um, I will engrave it, declares the Lord, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God is going to purify his people. 
He does it in part last week by sending out his word, calling people to repentance and judging the unrepentant sinners in their midst. And he also does it through purifying and and getting their sin off and their wickedness off of them. He is going to remove their sinful practices. He's going to remove their sinful ways. He's going to gather them up. He's not going to let them spill out and he will separate them from the people. The sin of Israel is departing and this is in process already. We're going to see there's a termination and the termination's not yet. But it's in process. That's emphatic. It's going out. It's not it will leave. It's It's on the move. God is in the act already of removing his people's sin. He's already in the act of gathering up and filling up this basket, even though where it's going is not yet ready. The departure of sin from the land. This is good news. This is very good news for Israel. It's good news for us. It's good news for us, but more more on that later. The second scene now we're going to turn our attention to is the destination of sins. We've seen the departure of sin, that it is going out. Now, where? The destination of sin. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. Now this is the part that admittedly I'm least certain of what is meant to be here. There's a lot of debate among commentators. Who are these women? Are they angels? Well, if they're angels, they're the only female angels in the Bible. They've got wings, but they're wings of storks, and storks are unclean animals. So are these evil forces? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the main point here. I'm not certain who these women are. What is clear is that this basket is being moved, that God is overseeing the removal, not only the removal of sin, but its termination, its destination. The question that is on Zechariah's mind is not who are they. He sometimes asks that. Look back in verse 6. He wants to know the identity of the basket. What is this? Here, that's not the question, so I'm going to go where the question directs. Apparently, knowing who these women are isn't the main point. The main point is, where are they taking the basket? So that's, that's where I'm getting my cues from. The destination's the point. The destination's the most important and emphatic issue here. Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. And that's what I'm saying. Notice the basket's already in movement, even though its destination isn't ready yet. We know where it's going, and it's already departing. But it's not ready to arrive yet. That's what we see. It's going to Shinar to build a house for it, And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So that then begs the question, our next point, what is Shinar? Well, it's only referenced six times in the Bible. And if you turn with me to Genesis 10, we'll go to the first location. And I think you'll grab the significance of why this destination is so significant. Genesis chapter 10 We'll pick it up in verse 6. These are the generations of the descendants of Noah after the flood. Genesis 10, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, 
and Sebteca, the sons of Ra'amah, Arsheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Shinar is where ancient Babel is located. And it's where the time of Zechariah is writing modern day Babylon. Shinar is ancient Babylon. Starting to grasp potentially some of the significance. Turn to Genesis 11. The significance is this. As you turn to Genesis 11, this is the first place of man's organized rebellion against God. This is the first place where man's organized rebellion against God occurred. Now, of course, we know the first sin occurred in the garden with the man and the woman. The woman was deceived. The man ate willfully. But here, in Genesis 11, God has given mankind a few instructions. One of them is to subdue the earth, to spread out, to be fruitful, and to multiply and the men of the earth gather together and they've got other plans. Let's, let's read about it in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You get that? We don't want to obey God. We don't want to be spread out. We don't want to do what he wants us to do. So let's gather together. Let's pool our resources, build a city, build a tower, so that we can oppose what God wants us to do. Let's make a name for ourselves, not a name for him. Let's stop him from spreading us out. You know, in direct contrast that you can't help but note, those of you going through the Genesis study, God comes to Abram in the next chapter and says, I'm going to make a name for you. But that's, that's another message for another time. The point is here, in ancient Babel, Babylon and Shinar, this is where the first organized rebellion against God took place. This is the birthplace, the organized um, rebellion against God, political Rebellion against God. Let's build the city in opposition to God. That, that's where it starts. And so as God gathers up the wickedness of his people, it, it, it's, it's not insignificant. It's very significant. It's the only question on Zechariah's mind. Where? Where is this going? It's going to Shinar. Um, one, one commentator... Charles Feinberg says it this way. Now the prophet Zechariah foretells that in the last days all wickedness with idolatry particularly in mind will, that will exist in Israel at that time will go back forcibly to the place of its origin, Babylon, the great apostate religious system. It's going back, it's, it's, going back, it's like return to sender. It's, it's going back to its place of origin. And if you'll now turn to the other end of the Bible with me, turn to, to Revelation chapter 17. We'll pick up some of the significance of the wickedness being personified as a woman. Because not only is Babylon, Shinar, the first place of organized rebellion, 
It is also the final place of organized rebellion. It is the first and final place of organized rebellion. Revelation 17. Let's just pick it up again in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality, and with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And if you're reading in the New Testament, there's not much mention in the New Testament to get to Revelation of Babylon. And so when finally Babylon shows up again in Revelation, it's because historically this is the archetype. This is where it began. This is where man's organized rebellion against God began. This is ultimately what's going to culminate in the eschaton in the last days. That's part of the reason why we see that this house for Israel's sin is not yet completed. This is something in process. The gathering up, the removal of Israel's sin... Is, is ongoing, but its final resting place, its final state, as we see in the book of Revelation, there's that woman again. Now we've got some idea why it's a woman in the basket. See, here she's a woman on a beast. In our text, she's a woman in a basket. And when we come to the book of Revelation, Feinberg's writes, all this is clearly set forth in chapter 17 and 18. Not only the evil of Judaism, but that in Christendom as well, will wind up and culminate in that abominable system called mystical or mystery Babylon. The greatest sin in Israel, even wickedness itself, was idolatry, and it will come to its settled abode at the very place of its inception. That, that's the significance of this. God is gathering up his, his people's sin and he is removing, he's cleansing them. But at the same time that he's cleansing them, Babylon's getting worse. The, the divide's getting bigger. Israel is becoming less and less like Babylon. Israel's losing less and less of Babylon's ways, her practices. The Lord is cleansing her. The Lord's gathering it up. He's not letting it slip out. It's not easy. Wickedness wants to spread like gangrene like leaven, but it's being forced in the basket. Israel is becoming purified. But what we're going to learn is Babylon's going to get worse and worse and worse. So finally, we see, and this is point B, that ultimately the world will worship and honor that which is wicked. See that language, to build a house, to build a house is to build a house of worship especially in the context of Zechariah. Israel, right now in Zechariah, is, is, is building a house for God. And here, we see a rival house that's being built. It's not done yet. It's not complete. It's still a work in process. He said in verse 11, they're taking this basket to Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they'll set the basket down there on its base. That, that just as God's people are, are growing in Israel and they're, they're perfecting and they're, they're building this temple 
to worship the living God. So the, the world around them is growing in their resisting to him. And what began at Babel is an attempt to build a tower in a city and was thwarted through God's judgment of the proliferation of languages will eventually come to a culmination a second time in Revelation and someday yet future. And we see in our culture around us, don't we, more and more that, that what Scripture, what God calls wicked, the culture values more and more. Because that's, that's the picture here. So when this temple is built, this basket filled with wickedness will be put down on a on a base, which is a place of honor, like a podium. You know, in, in, the, in the classic notion of a temple, you put the idol on the, the statue on the podium for all to see and venerate. And here, what's going to be venerated, what's going to be worshipped in this temple is going to be wickedness. And already we, we see that, don't we? A growing movement in our culture. It's not there yet, but it's, it's, it's moving. Where things that God calls wicked, that, that God hates, are celebrated are championed, are glorified. I mean, how many movies want to make adultery a beautiful thing? How many movies want to take and make premarital sex a beautiful thing? How much energy is our culture throwing into convincing us that, that, that gay marriage is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing? That, that, that it's a woman's right to choose. We could do the list, could go on and on of things that our culture says, these are good things. These are things to celebrate. These are things to lift high. These are things to venerate. These are things that are wonderful that God's word says are evil. So don't be surprised when you see our culture moving that way. It's, it's moving that way now. It's going to culminate in Revelation 17 and 18. The good news is that despite that movement, God's still going to purify his people. Despite the fact that Babylon's getting worse, Israel's getting cleansed. People will worship and honor that which is wicked. Paul predicts this in Philippians 3.19, talking of people whose glory is in their shame. And, and we've said this before, but let there be no uncertainty. What keeps people from coming to Christ they love their sin. They love their sin. Listen to, listen to the language of, of 2 Thessalonians. Let me turn to 2 Thessalonians really fast. And listen to the language of 2 Thessalonians speaking in this context about this, this sort of showdown at the end of, of days. 2 Thessalonians starting in verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may not be revealed, so that he may be revealed in his time. Yeah, lead cover with an angel. That's what's restraining him now. But For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception. Now get this. For those who are perishing, why do they perish? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now we get that. We say, absolutely, people perish because they don't believe the gospel. They don't love the gospel. Amen. That is, that's why people perish, sadly. He's going to say it another way. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You get the notion it's an either or. Either you love truth or you love sin. Either you love Jesus Christ or you love your own way. And here, as this dividing line's widening, as, as Israel's becoming less and less like Babylon, less and less like the world around her, and Babylon's getting worse and worse, there's one group that worships the living God, and there's one group that loves, delights in, and worships sin. That the teams are set, and, and the distinction between the two is becoming more and more clear and stark. There are those who are going to revere, love, worship, Wickedness. And there are those who are to revere, love, and worship the living God. That, that's this vision. So what does all that mean? Point three, the doctrine of sin. The teaching. What do we get from this? The teaching by doctrine. I needed something that started with a D. Got the departure of sin, the destination of sin, the doctrine of sin, the teaching of this vision. Four points. Four points. Four things I think we can get out of this for ourselves today. First, God rules over evil in the world. God rules over evil in the world. This progression, the, the, the opposition, this temple that's going to be in Shinar, it's not catching God by surprise. He's superintending the process. Sometimes we think of God and Satan, you know, st stuck in a, you know, a deadly chess match or wrestling match and, and Satan makes a move and God's a better chess player and he, you know, he's going to win but it's going to be close. That's not the picture the, the Bible reveals of, of God and Satan. God permits wickedness in this world and he oversees it and he will bring it to an end. We, we looked at Revelation at the, the, the prostitute, the, the, the whore of Babylon. Go back to Revelation 17. I want you to see how it ends. Does, does this great power thwart, scare, trouble, or any way pose a threat to God? No. Revelation 17, where we saw the culmination of wickedness in Shinar and Babylon. How does it end? Verse 15 of chapter 17. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and the peoples and the multitudes and nations and languages... There's that Babel reference. This, this woman has gathered all these nations and all these languages and all these people groups. The judgment at Babylon and Babel is undone. And the ten horns that you saw, what's going to happen to her? They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, why would they do that? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. You get how sovereign our God is? Here's some of the most wicked, evil beings opposed to him, and they do whatever he puts in their heart to do. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. It's not, it's not much of a struggle. By being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So yeah, there, there's a showdown coming. There's two teams that are gathering Two temples being built, and yet God is sovereign over it. And then the point of that is to say, be confident, be at peace. Yes, 
You can be dismayed when you read your newspapers. Yes, you, I, I do when I see our culture around us more and more celebrating wickedness. My heart grieves. But don't doubt. Don't despair. Don't let your hope be wavered. God predicted it over 1,000, 2,000 years ago here in Zechariah. He, he's going to triumph. This isn't catching him by surprise. We shouldn't be surprised by it. God is sovereign. He rules over everything, including the evil in the world. It's not catching him by surprise. God rules over the evil in the world. That's clear. He's showing this vision to Zechariah. Here's what's happening. Here's the way I'm going to cleanse you. Here's what's going to happen to Babylon. They're going to get worse. I'm going to purify you. Second, God restrains evil in the world. So he rules over evil in the world. Second, God restrains evil in the world. You know, I oftentimes marvel at why things aren't worse than they are. Have you ever stopped and think that? See, sometimes it can be the opposite. We can think that we're so good and our country's so good. It's a shame all these bad things are happening. I'm, I'm the other opposite way. I'm amazed more people aren't flying planes into buildings. I'm amazed that more people aren't doing terrible things. I'm, I'm amazed there aren't more attacks. I, I, I fully believe that within the human heart is the capacity for all types of evil. And the only reason I have why that hasn't happened is because God is restraining evil in the world. I mean, thank him for that. I mean, please don't think that it's because we're good people. That's why there's not more massacres. That's why there's not more suicide bombings because of the goodness of man. That's just another lie the culture wants to believe. I fully believe that within my heart are the seeds for all types of evil, all types of evil. And it's the grace of God and the grace of God alone that restrains, restrains that. God restrains evil in the world through a number of ways, through conscience. God gives evil, unbelieving people who hate him a conscience that restrains evil. He's given human government to restrain evil, to, to punish the wrongdoer. And sovereignly, he restrains evil in the world. And just be thankful for that. I'm just thankful that there's any modicum of, of peace. Because we know things are getting worse. We know that things are heading to a showdown. We know that in the book of Revelation, all those semblances and all those restraints are pulled off. But for now, we live in a day where it's being restrained. We saw that in Second Thessalonians. It's being held back. And so yes, there is plenty of evil in the world, but there's so much less than there could be and so much less than there will be in that day. So God rules over the evil in the world. Be confident be thankful God restrains evil in the world. It's not the goodness of man holding it back. It's not the triumph of the human spirit that is the reason why we have any peace or good things. It's the grace of God. He restrains. He's putting the lid on it. Third, God cleanses his people. Amidst all this wickedness and this gathering and these temples being built in Babylon, what's happening? Israel's being cleansed. Israel's being cleansed. It's not thwarting God's plan. The, the cleansing work is taking place in the sinful and corrupt world around. God is cleansing his people. You know that passage that we, we use at weddings so often in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he, now, why did Christ do that? Why did, you ever stop? Keep reading that verse. Why did Jesus die for the church? 
Paul answers it, that he might sanctify her. Jesus died so he could cleanse you. It's not the only reason he died, but he died so he could cleanse you. Jesus died to sanctify you. And again, this is something we leave out of our gospel very frequently. We'll we'll say Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin. Amen, hallelujah, yes he did. Jesus died so you could go to heaven and be glorified. Amen, hallelujah, yes he did. Jesus died so he could sanctify and cleanse you throughout the rest of your life as you are no longer controlled by the power of sin and you become conformed more and more to his image. Amen, hallelujah, yes he did. God's gonna cleanse his people. Jesus died, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he could sanctify her having cleansed her, how? By the washing of the water of the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. You see, the way human history is going is evil men are going to go from bad to worse, and this, this temple in Shannar is going to get built, and, and wickedness is going to be worshipped, and the whole world's going to gather around the Babylon the Great. And over here is going to be God's people, sanctified and pure without spot or blemish. Because Christ is going to come back for a purified and holy bride. God cleanses his people. He cleanses his people. Point D, final point. God separates his people from the world. And that's, that's the other unmistakable thing. The sin's going out. Basket's going out. He's cleansing them. But the teams are being more and more divided. And here's what I mean. There's been a day in the West, in America, where it seemed, I don't think it was real, but it seemed as though the culture and Christianity could get along pretty well. And for, you know, the last hundred or so years, that that seemed to be the case, at least at a superficial surface level. And that you could be a Christian and love the Lord, and you could be fitting into your culture around you without any major conflict. Those days are quickly passing if they ever were here in the first place. And the days are coming where, to let on, for anyone to realize that you believe what the Bible says makes you a bigot, makes you um, hateful, judgmental, intolerant. The teams are being divided, right? You're no longer able to have a foot in both worlds. And what's happening is sort of like somebody's got a foot on the boat and a foot on the dock. They're getting spread further and further apart. And we're seeing in churches all around the country people deciding do they want to be over here or they want to be over here and we see some people coming down and we say praise God they're taking a stand for truth and we see other people just you know dump the truth and the teams are being divided God is calling us to be separated from the world and again this shouldn't surprise us this is nothing new listen to John 15 Jesus speaking if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it has hated you If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if the world hasn't hated us the last 50, 100 years or so, again, that's just the grace of God restraining sin. We should certainly expect, normally, the world's going to hate us. And we're living in a day and age where more and more that looks like that may well be the case. It shouldn't surprise us. 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. And this, this, might, this whole picture of the world and where it's heading, where 
God's people are headed. It might make 1 John 2.15 make more sense. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because the world's all headed where that system's going is to Revelation 17 and 18. It's going to that house that's being built in Shinar. And if you love that, you can't love the house that's built over here. That's why John can say, hey, if you love the world, love of the Father's not in you. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. Oh, no. It's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever loves the will of God, whoever does the will of God, abides forever. With this passage to make abundantly clear to us is we, we can't do both. We can't be on both teams. We can't play for both teams. There's a sports analogy. You can't play for both teams. You can't, you can't wear both shirts. The, the, the divide is being clearer and clearer. The teams are being more starkly and starkly differentiated. And God is sanctifying his people in the midst of this, but it is becoming less and less possible to try to do both. Which is why in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, and this is, I think, a good word for us. If we want to try to be a friend of the world and a friend of God's. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What a proportion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you. And you'll be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. We, we, we've got to decide what team we want to play for. We've got to decide what our treasure is, what we love. We've got to decide whose colors we're going to wear. And the, the division is only getting bigger. The distinction is only getting greater. As God sanctifies his people, as we become more Conformed to the image of Christ, the culture and the world around us is being more and more conformed to the image of its God, lowercase g. And so that's the decision that's called upon us. And as I call the worship team up for our final song, I think it's, it's quite appropriate that we, our prayer would be that God would give us an undivided heart, that God would cause us to be focused and, and <laughs> renounce what love of the world we have. We want him. We want to invite his cleansing. We want to invite his sifting. We want to invite his purifying. We don't want to be taken up and carried away. We want our sin to be taken up and carried away. So if you would please stand. We will sing. Change my heart.